Well, good morning. Uh, there's one person who thinks it's a good morning. Good morning to the rest of you. Yeah, hey, so good to be here. And thanks, uh, Lois and the, and the big team for leading us. That was fantastic worship. Sets the right tone. I love it. Uh, as Lois said in her prayer, my name is Eldon, Eldon Fair. My wife, Marcy, is here. And uh, I'm the pastor at our Agassiz campus, and you're probably thinking, well, what on earth are you doing up here? You should be in Agassiz. Uh, oh, by the way, um, Agassiz is the first campus that uh, Central Community Church established um, almost eight and a half years ago. In fact, I was uh, hired in preparation for that uh, campus uh, plant, and I was just doing the math as we were sitting here. Today is May 15th. I started in November 15th, 2013. So to the day, eight and a half years on staff with Central. And it's amazing. But this is only my second time ever here. I've never preached in Promontory. I came, we came four years ago for uh, the dedication of two of our grandchildren uh, up here. And uh, so this is a privilege for me to be able to open up the Word of God for you today. So we've played musical pulpits a little bit today uh, at Central. Uh, so Pastor Matt, our lead pastor, is preaching in Agassiz today and Lake Arrock. Uh, in Chilliwack, Pastor Jason Wall, and I'm here in uh, Promontory because your beloved pastor, Jonathan, is in Cuba this morning. Did you know that? Yeah. So he's in Cuba with uh, Jorge, with Dr. Jorge Salazar. World Serve, the two of them are going to equip and train pastors for two weeks. So Jorge has been there all this past week. Jonathan left Friday, and he'll be teaching all this coming week, right? And so uh, I just want to take a moment to pray for him and for Corinna. Is she back in the room, or is she doing kids' ministry this morning? Because, preschool. oh, preschool. So I was told this is the first time that Jonathan and Corinna have been apart since they adopted the kids, right? So let's pray for her. Encourage her after the service, all right? Ask her if there's anything she needs. So uh, let's pray. God, thank you for uh, this campus. Thank you for Promontory, that you have put uh, this place as a light uh, on a hillside, that it would uh, shine your love and, and the truth of your gospel uh, brightly. <clears throat> so I pray your blessing on this place and, uh, and upon its pastor, Jonathan, as he's away, protect him. Fill him with the power of your Holy Spirit that he and Jorge would represent you well and really encourage and equip the local pastors who desperately need some input into their lives. And so we pray for that, that the church in Cuba would grow as a result of the investment that we're making there this, uh, this week. And uh, be with Corinna and the, the children as they uh, spend 10 days alone, uh, that you would uh, meet their needs and uh, provide everything that they need while dad and husband are away. So commit that to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, it's, it's good that we could talk about uh, even Jonathan and Corinna being apart. It creates strain on marriage. Today we're talking about marriage as part of a family dynamic uh, in the church, but in our, our own, uh, you know, family units that we find ourselves living in. Back in January, Pastor Chris Ross started a series called Family Dynamics, and we've been talking through these dynamics uh, periodically since January uh, and through to the end of June. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul said, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. And so just as in a, you know, a, 
a nuclear household in the church, there are, there are fathers and mothers and children, siblings, uh, brothers, sisters. There's widows, there, and there's wives, and there's husbands. So today we have the privilege of talking about marriage. And so as we do that, we're going to anchor our time in Ephesians 5, probably the most well-known passage on marriage in the Bible. And as we read, just as a sign of reverence and respect for God's Word, let's stand together and listen to what God has to say. Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. The reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, this is a loaded text (laughs) in our culture, right? I can see some people get nervous out there. What's this whole submission and respect and and, uh, love thing all about? So um, before we dive, you know, headlong into this beautiful yet kind of tricky passage somewhat, I want to frame the conversation by noting three things off the top. So I want, to, I want to give a word first about calling and, and the choices that we make in life. And it pertains to singleness and to marriage. You see, even though we're primarily dealing with uh, the marriage relationship today, I want to be really sensitive to those who are unmarried. I don't want to exclude anyone from the discussion. So there's a couple of things that are on my mind. First of all, the Bible affirms singleness not only as a high calling, and Jesus himself talked to this. Like, not everybody is called to this. It's a high calling. The Apostle Paul did as well in, in 1 Corinthians 7. So the Bible affirms singleness as a high calling and a godly path of discipleship. I mean, Jesus was not, he, he was never married, right? He was single. Uh, Paul said that singleness actually is a better choice. <laughs> That's what he said. It's better because you don't have divided interests. You can give yourself fully to the work of the Lord and not have to worry about other things. Um, so singleness and marriage are both honorable. They're good for the right reasons with biblical and sexual faithfulness at the core of each choice, okay? So second thing about this calling and choice is that some, sometimes those who are not married tend to tune out in sermons like this. You hear, oh, yeah, they're talking about marriage. I'm, I'm out of here. I'll go get another coffee or whatever. Um, there's no application for me. However, the ultimate application of this text, Paul said, is for all Christians, for all of us here this morning. Because 
Paul ultimately uses his teaching on marriage to point us to a relationship that Christ, the bridegroom, has with his bride, the church. And that's all of us here, okay? So, in a spiritual sense, every person who is a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ is married. And with that in mind, there will be some application for everyone. So, I want to say also, number two, a word about our culture. Um, like never before, you know, young people, young Canadians are avoiding marriage entirely. Marriage is in decline, and cohabitation with a sexual partner is on the rise. And I say partner uh, in more than one sense of the word because the very definition of biblical marriage is a lifelong covenant relationship between one man and one woman of like mind is not at all valid in our culture. We live in a cultural moment that uh, is challenging, but also uh, has a, a, an incredible opportunity for the church to be faithful to what the Word of God says. So, cohabitation uh, with a sexual partner uh, and singleness continues to be on the increase because there's pessimism about marriage today in our society. So in, a, in addition to the attack on the traditional biblical uh, meaning and definition of marriage, we are surrounded by uh, loved ones who have failed marriages who are on the increase. And, and I want to say to you, if, if a failed marriage is part of your history, um, I am so glad that you're here to listen and to, uh, to experience the grace of God afresh. Yeah, because God's redeeming grace is for all of us. Listen, uh, marriage is hard. <laughs> marriage is extremely hard. The only reason that uh, Marcy and I have a, a fantastic marriage that has lasted 32 years, we are celebrating 32 on Thursday this week. Woo! May long weekend. May 19th, 1990. Uh, the only reason it's lasted that long is because I'm awesome. <laughs> now, if you believe that, I probably need to, like, take you out for lunch or something and explain the fact that God's grace is pretty uh, rich and evident in our lives. And I have married a very godly woman who takes Scripture seriously, who embodies the instructions that Paul gives to wives so well. That's the reason we have a fantastic marriage. Uh, it's uh, certainly not me. <laughs> so... Uh, where are we? Got sidetracked. Um, people today, though, because marriage is hard, we have to work at it continually every day. Uh, they want the path of least resistance, right? Um, and at the same time, there's unre unrealistic expectations about marriage that, you know, if you find just the right soulmate, it's going to be easy. That person will meet all your needs and never demand anything from you, which is a dominant narrative uh, today in romantic, you know, fiction, movies, books, whatever. Uh, it doesn't exist. So we need a, a realistic and biblical view of marriage, uh, and we find it in our text today. So there, one more word, but before this, I just want to mention there are three main directives in Ephesians 5 pertaining to marriage, two of them directed to wives and only one to husbands. So what are they? Uh, he talks, first of all, about uh, submission of wives to their husbands. Paul talks about husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. And then he, t then he ends with wives, respect your husbands. Two to women, one to men. 
The, re the rest of the instruction and teaching is around these three directives. Now, I want to say this. Only one of these verbs, so three verbs, submit, love, respect. Only one of these verbs is written in the imperative mood in the, in the original language. Can you guess which one it is? Take a guess. Is it submit, is it love, or is it respect? It's love. It's love. It's the only one that the Apostle Paul expounds on the most, and it is the only command. It is the only imperative. The others are a response. Husbands, love your wives. We're going to talk more about this a little bit later. Uh, and so one might be tempted to stress the importance of these three directives in the order in which they appear in the text, but I'm actually going to change it up a little bit in the order that I talk about them, and I have a couple of reasons for this. The first is the context of all of Ephesians 5, and the second is the language, which determines emphasis. So rather than emphasizing this morning the submission of wives as the primary directive, and there's a reason why Paul talks about that first, because it's linked to verse 21. And so he automatically talks about submission. But his main point is love. All right? So we're going we're gonna to do that. The main point of the passage is love, and that falls squarely on the husband. And then he talks about uh, respect at the end. So I'm going to take them in that order. I'm going to talk about love, then I'm going to talk about our response of submission and respect within that relationship. So I want to say one more thing, and then we'll dive into the text a bit more. Well, we're already diving in, but I want to talk about this context. First of all, mutual submission. Uh, verses 21 and 22, I didn't read verse 21, but mutual submission. In the, the, the language of the, that the Bible was originally written in, verses 21 and 22 belong together. It is one sentence. It, and it's, uh, it's uh, sometimes disappointing that, the, you know, in our English Bibles, we have, they separated it into these headings, right? It is actually one continuous sentence that's separated by a comma. They go together. So, verses 21 and 22 are not separate thoughts. In fact, the word submission only occurs one time in these two verses, and it's in verse 21, but it is assumed and it is inferred in verse 22, and that's why it's written into our English that way. <clears throat> so if you took a literal reading of Ephesians uh, 5, 21 and 22 together, it would, it would say something like this, and I think it'll be on the screen here. Um, Submit yourselves to one another or one to another out of fear for God and wives to your husbands as to the Lord. That's the way it is actually written. In the church, as in Christian marriage, men and women alike are called to submit themselves to one another. It's not a one-way street. You know, even Christ, the husband of the church, chose to submit. He didn't have to because he had all authority, but he chose to. In fact, our salvation is is based on his submission and his obedience. Christ's main mission, the reason he came, John 3.16 tells us, is because God so loved the world. So love is the foundational reason why God came to redeem us. And within that, he submitted his own life and his will into the hands of the Father to whom he was responsible to, to him under whose authority he acted 
If, if Jesus would not have submitted, we would not be saved. And I tell people, if we can't submit, we can't be saved. We have to submit to an authority. And first of all, that's to Jesus in order to experience His redeeming grace. Submission, too, Paul said, is a sign of being filled with the Spirit. Do you want to live a Spirit-filled life? If you want to, you need to submit. It's the only way to be filled by the Spirit is to put aside ourselves and ask God to come and take over. Uh, in all of our relationships, and marriage is so important. So if submission is mutual, why the extra emphasis for wives? <laughs> I'll talk about that later, okay? Let's get into the text. Oh, no, second thing about context, headship. Woo, now we're really open up a can of worms, okay? Let's just get right into it. Submission and headship, okay? Uh, the second thing about this text in the context is headship of the husband in the same way that Christ is head of the church. So 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, Paul wrote this, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. We need to understand biblical headship. Christ is the head of a man, a husband is the head of his wife, and God is the head of Christ. Headship is an extremely important truth that goes far beyond earthly marriage. The directives of submission of wives and the love of husbands and the respect of wives all occur within the context of, number one, mutual submission, and secondly, headship. So listen, men are not commanded to be heads of their wives. They're commanded to love their wives. Headship is assumed. It's a critical observation because many men think that they must prove their headship. And if that's something that you need to prove in your marriage, it's going to be a struggle. <laughs> All right? I'm just saying, it's not going to go well for you. <laughs> Um, that kind of thinking is not only wrong, because, and it, but it's dangerous, and it leads to all kinds of problems. Husbands are never commanded to be the head. They are commanded to love. There's a big difference. They are commanded to love as the head of their wives, even as Christ is head of the church, and even as God is head of the Father, or as of Jesus, the, His Son. Jesus did not walk the earth teaching and preaching a message of headship. I mean, it wouldn't have gone over well with the disciples who already struggled with who's more important. <laughs> you know, if, all, if the disciples just simply heard Jesus say, hey, look at me, I'm in charge, I'm the head, you know, you better realize who has the, who has the real authority here, um, it, it wouldn't have gone well with his disciples either. He demonstrated his headship by what he did, and we're going to come to that in our text. In humble obedience and submission, coupled with, you know, a great tenderness, compassion, and the most incredible love you ever witnessed, Jesus demonstrated his authority and his headship over the church and to the world in the most unexpected of ways. He served and he sacrificed. He humbled himself. He washed feet. He submitted. So the word head, as used in Ephesians here, actually denotes superior rank. The husband is not a superior person, but he's been given a role by God. That's what headship is, is pointing towards. Not a person, but their rank, so to speak. What does that mean? I, I mean, I can see some women here getting nervous. <laughs> this superior rank? Oh, come on. What are you talking about? It simply means 
that in matters of responsibility, the husband is the go-to guy. He's the one who is responsible for the direction of the marriage and his family. It doesn't mean that he, it, it means that husband and wife lead together, but God will hold a husband responsible for how that goes. He, he can't shift the blame. So to put it in maybe some terms that we can understand, um, I've pastored uh, churches in a number of small communities. And so these small communities, as in Chilliwack, they have these local uh, uh, fire halls, right? Like Station 1, Station 7, whatever. Each one of those fire halls has a, uh, a local head. <laughs> They're called a brigade chief or a um, battalion chief. They're not the chief of Chilliwack Fire and Rescue, but they are local in their, in their hall, the person who's responsible. And it's structured that way for reason. So, uh, <clears throat> so I know people who work in the fire hall in a number of different places, and uh, it's like a family. It really is. These guys, they know each other. They have their back. They have to. They trust each other. They train together a lot. They spend time because it's crucial in an emergency that everybody knows their role and that they trust one another. And so uh, because one person has superior rank in the hall, does that mean, first of all, that they're a better firefighter? <laughs> no. In fact, I know a guy who's the uh, battalion chief or the deputy chief of a local fire hall who has far less experience than a number of guys in his hall who have been there much longer and who are probably better firefighters. But he's the guy who's been given the rank. He's responsible, and there's a reason for that. Does it mean that this battalion chief can boss everybody around because of his rank? Absolutely not. That would not build trust. It would not build safety. On the other hand, because of their position, they do all they can to earn the trust and respect of their crew. But in matters pertaining to their crew, which is their family, that one person bears the responsibility and the communication to those who are in authority over him. They're responsible for safety, decision-making. They're responsible for what happens on a call, for making sure the team is well-prepared, trained, equipped, so that people don't get hurt. That's the reason. And it's the same in a marriage. God has appointed one person to be responsible so that the family is protected, equipped, trained. They trust each other and so that people don't get hurt. That's the way I like to describe headship. It's the way God designed it to be. In fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis when Adam failed to protect his wife and he allowed sin to enter the world, he was held responsible. If you read Romans and you read Corinthians, sin was, not, sin was traced to Adam, not to Eve. Adam was given the command by God to not eat the forbidden fruit even before Eve was created. And he didn't do what he was asked to do by God. And he bore the consequences of that. He was responsible. And so the husband, as head of his wife, is not only the one responsible, the protector, the provider, he's also the initiator of that relationship, just the way Christ initiated relationship with us. Romans 5 verse 8 said that Jesus uh, loved us first. We didn't love him first. He initiated. 
while we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. So as head men are ultimately the ones responsible for the direction of the relationship, they lead, set the tone, chart the course, bear responsibility, and are accountable to Christ. So, all of that said, let's get a little further into the text. That was a long introduction, hey? <laughs> I needed to frame this properly, otherwise we don't understand what Paul's talking about, okay? Again, we're going to talk about love, then submission, then respect. Number one, husband, love your wife. Present tense, active voice, imperative mood. Every day, continually, it is commanded that you love your wife. Period. Feelings aside, hopefully the feelings are there, that you want to love your wife, and it's warm and fuzzy and all of that kind of stuff, but when it's not, and I'm not talking about, you know, squeezing toothpaste from the wrong end of the tube, or putting toilet paper on the hanger the wrong way, <laughs> or whatever it is else you disagree about, when, but when life gets really hard and you are tempted to give up, husbands love your wives. There are three words in the Greek language that are all translated love in English. They are philia, eros, and agape. Philia, if you know the city Philadelphia, it's two Greek words, philia and adelphos. Adelphos is brother, philia is love. It's the city of brotherly love, right? Um, it's friendship, love. It's uh, as a husband and wife enjoying being together, going on dates, going to the movies, calling each other, texting each other during the day. How are you doing? Love you. Um, anything you need? That kind, of a st that kind of thing, right? Then there's um, eros. This is where we get our word erotic. It is sexual love. Every good marriage has sexual love, but the base is agape, which is godly, sacrificial love. The word agape is the word used here in Ephesians, and it is always used to describe God's love for His people which is covenant love, no matter what his people do, God's love remains. He is faithful. Men are commanded to love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. What does that mean? Three things. Number one, he will sacrifice for her. He will sacrifice for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We literally, men, need to give things up for our wives. We need to give up our, ourselves, our desires, what we want. We need to give up maybe some of the things we want. You know, it's a, there's always the standing joke, you know, boys and their toys, <laughs> right? Sometimes there's things that you have to give up. For a while, I owned two motorcycles, not for long. Marcy said, you can have one in the garage, and that's it, okay? And, and, and not that I really wanted to, but I... There, Guys, there are certain things that, you know, things that we need to give up or time with the guys or uh, fishing always <laughs> or whatever to sacrifice those things for the sake of our wives because they need us, they want us. Uh, taking the bullet. Not being a coward, guys, to protect your family. You're on the front line. If someone's going to if somebody's going to shoot bullets at your family, you're there first. Uh, Mark chapter 10, 
Jesus said this, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, that's rank, that's headship. Whoever would be first among you must be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is sacrifice. Number two, husbands, love your wife and sanctify her. Verse 26, 27, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present her the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I'm not talking about spots or wrinkles that come with age on the skin. I'm talking about <laughs> spot, wrinkle, blemish spiritually. This, I believe, this purifying, sanctifying work is spiritual leadership in the home. Contributing to our wives and our kids, if God blesses us with kids or gives us kids, by contributing to their holiness. So as I was doing some final uh, review and preparation of this message, I, I was checking my email, and I got an email from Focus on the Family. I'm on their list. And just yesterday, they released a six-part free video series. Okay, guys, it's free. It's free. Write it down. Focus on the Family. It's by Dr. Robert and Jenny Paul, an email yesterday where they released a video series called Spiritual Intimacy in Marriage. How to create spiritual intimacy in your relationship. That's this, sanctifying work, okay? Number three, uh, Paul said, men, husbands, love your wives and satisfy her. Verses 28 to 30, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as, the Christ does, as Christ does the church, because we are members of one body. How do you nourish your body? You feed it. I love food. To me, it goes beyond nourishment. It's so satisfying. Beyond nourishment, it tastes good. Men, if you want your your marriage is to be palatable and satisfying, not just for you, but thinking of your wife first, nourish her. I often don't do good well in this area. Um, to be a life-giving source to my wife, there are times when I <clears throat> will leave, or I'll get up in the morning and I just get, you know, have my devotions and I get right into work and then I'm so busy, I just leave the door and I sometimes don't even think to say goodbye and Marcy's like, I'm over here. Can I have a hug before you go? It's like, oh, yeah, that's nourishment, right? A hug, a touch, a kiss, uh, holding hands, compliments, those kind of things. Cherishing someone means caring for them, tenderness, compassion, gentleness. Men, we need to be tender, gentle. Paul talks about commitment here. Um, leaving mom and dad, being united with wife, Leaving and cleaving, guys, uh, when you enter marriage, you've left your mom and dad, you've left that family, they're important to you, you go visit, you have meals with them, you ask their advice sometimes still if, if you want it. Man, you're committed to your wife, ask her advice first. You're in this together, figure it out. Don't send her home to mom and dad to get her act together. I know of guys who've done that. That's terrible. Don't do that. Wives don't, like, don't, like, guys, don't go to your mom and dad and say, hey, should we buy this new car? 
ask your wife. <laughs> All right? You figure it out together. You've left. Cleave. Walk into the front door of marriage, close the door, and, and, and don't look for the back door. Um, bottom line with all of this, with guys, love is a demonstration, not a proclamation. I've got Romans 5.8 now on the screen, which says, but God demonstrates, He shows through His actions His own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this, this sacrificing, satisfying, nourishing kind of love, purifying love must be demonstrated. Our words don't cut it, guys. Our actions do. I heard somebody say one time, a successful marriage requires falling in love many times, always with the same person. A successful marriage requires falling in love many times, always with the same person. And when a husband falls in love with his wife many times, even daily, as the command is, with tangible demonstrations of the way Christ loved his bride, then the following two directives to wives should come a little easier. So, let's move on. Number two here, wives. Wife, submit to your husband as to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything, uh, in everything, to their husbands. The word submit uh, is a combination of, of actually two Greek words that when translated literally, it means under arrangement. Uh, it was used in three different ways. As a military term, it meant to arrange oneself under a leader, a commander on the field. There's a structure, again, for a certain reason, reason and that is for protection. Good communication, so that things go well. Uh, in non-military terms, this underarrangement means a voluntary attitude of cooperation and giving in. And the way it is used here in Ephesians, in particular, within the context of marriage, it means to become subject by voluntary, voluntarily yielding in love. And it contains an element of obedience. Submission does not refer to a man bringing a woman into subjection. Get that out of your minds. But submission is a woman voluntary, voluntarily yielding herself to her husband in response to his love for her. That's submission. Voluntary. She's responding to his demonstrated love as he protects her, leads her spiritually in the context of biblical headship, cherishes her, nourishes her. He initiates, she responds. I think that's the way God intended it to be. And if you go back to, you know, um, Ephesians, or sorry, uh, um, Genesis chapter 3, um, we see why things go sideways is when men uh, don't initiate and, and women don't respond to that. What you see is a struggle where men dominate and, and women tend to dig in their heels and resist. And it, that was told long ago in Genesis chapter 3, one of the results of the sin where, uh, you know, uh, God said that uh, a woman, a wife, would desire the role given by men and for husbands to dominate and be heavy-handed. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That's the result of sin. We have to resist that, guys. When, when we dominate or we're heavy-handed or aggressive, women either back up or 
and, and uh, withdraw, or they dig in and resist. And that's not a good marriage. God created before the fall, before sin entered the picture, that man and woman would rule together. This mutual submission. Let's take the command of God and let's do this together. Let's lead together. In the context of mutual submission and headship. And so in our culture today, people confuse headship and submission with what I call dominance and doormat. They're not at all the same thing. Not at all. So, if husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, I think the submission of a wife to her husband would be no problem voluntarily yielding to that kind of sacrifice. But men, uh, again, a challenge. We tend to mess things up, right? In fact, in Ephesians 6, Paul will talk about children being obedient to their parents. But he singles out a father, and he says, Fathers, don't exasperate your kids. <laughs> don't be heavy-handed with them. Notice he never said that to a mom. <laughs> he said that to dad. And so I think that's the reason. It also applies in marriage because men can be um, overbearing. We're responsible for the tone and direction of our families because uh, we cannot do it well. So Paul ends this way, verse 33. Wife, the last thing, respect your husband. Each one of you should love his wife as himself. Again, the re-emphasis of love and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The, the word here used by Paul is the word uh, phobos. It's the word fear. And fear can be used in actually a couple of different ways. Number one is actually to fear, and that can be split into actually three different ways. Fear in terms of terror or dread. If, if, a, if a wife actually lives in fear in terms of dreading her husband, it's not the word that actually, the meaning that Paul has here. That's, that's not good. It's not biblical. Phobos can mean in terms of fear to be afraid, not in terms of terror or dread, but to be afraid of. But here it means reverence. 62 times in Scripture, phobos means terror or dread, 23 times to be afraid of, five times or to be afraid, five times to be afraid of, and only once in all of Scripture does it mean, phobos, mean to revere. And it is right here in our text in Ephesians 5. That's amazing. A wife's respect for her husband should never be because she's afraid, but because she reveres him, uh, because he commands respect. He doesn't ask for it, but in the way he lives, she respects that, and she says, you're a good guy. I, lo I love you. I want to respond to you. I want to respect you because you're doing it right. Respect is never demanded, but it is commanded through demonstrated acts of love. <clears throat> so men, husbands, if you have to demand respect, you actually don't have it. You have to earn it. Margaret Thatcher said one time, does anybody know who Margaret Thatcher is? <laughs> She used to be the Prime Minister of Great Britain. And she said one time, I love this quote, being powerful is a lot like being a woman. If you have to tell someone that you are, invariably you are not. <laughs> it's the same way in marriage. If you have to tell your, your wives, men, that you need respect, 
you don't have it. If you demand that your family respects you and that you deserve it, you are entirely going about it the wrong way. By the way, respect in marriage is also mutual. The Apostle Peter said to husbands, respect your wives so that your prayers will not be hindered. Think about that one. Let's conclude. I want to direct you to uh, another book. It's uh, a book written by Emerson Egrix uh, called Love and Respect. The love she most desires, the respect he desperately needs. There's three cycles. First one is the crazy cycle. I hope it's up there. Ah, there we go. <clears throat> without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, he reacts without love. And you go around that wheel, it gets pretty crazy, right? Good book. Three, three main sections to this book. The first one is craziness. The second cycle is energizing. His love motivates her respect, and her respect, out of response, motivates his love, and it, and it creates a, a good energy within the marriage. But it, it actually goes beyond that. There's what's called the rewarded cycle, which I would say is the redeemed cycle. It's the way God loves us and the way we ought to respect what he did for us. His love, regardless of her respect and her respect regardless of his love. That makes for a beautiful redemptive cycle. And I want to tell you, though, if men do what they're asked to do, this will not be a problem. Uh, Peter Kreeft, he said, all of history is kind of a broken marriage, and God puts us back together again, over and over. Three quick observations, as I already said. Um, Paul's teaching is imperative for men. So, husbands, the cycle begins with us. It's because we're head of our wives and we're head of our families. And so you determine, guys, how, the, how it's going to go. If, if, guys, if you're living with someone who's very hard to love, uh, I'll say it politely, she's like a nag, uh, you got to look at yourself. You created that. 99.95% of the time. <laughs> there might be some genetics in there, okay, but... We all have that. <laughs> when Marcy and I really want to dig at each other, <laughs> I, I call her by her mom's name and she calls me by my dad's name. And then we know, okay, I have to change right now. <laughs> all right? But guys, okay, we set the tone. The cycle begins with us. Number two, Paul's teaching is imperative for marriage, obviously. This is why it's so important to be equally yoked. When you have people that have different values and they don't understand this, marriage is a big struggle. That's why God said it's not good for two people who are not equally, you know, under Christ, under His headship, yoked together. It's a struggle. It doesn't mean that it's not possible, but it's harder. And then number three, finally, Paul's teaching is crucial for mission. He said, guys, church, I'm ultimately talking um, about Christ and the church. That's the reason why a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh because it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us. And so marriage is the best picture we have on earth to show what Jesus did 
and what our future reality will be. There's a reason why that meal, that banquet we're looking forward to in heaven with the Lamb, with the bridegroom, is called the marriage feast of the Lamb. And so when people look at our marriages, do they see a good reflection of what Christ did for us? So the purpose of marriage, your purpose for marriage, if you're married here this morning, ultimately is to point people to Christ. It's you're living on mission just by being married and being married well. And so uh, this covenant relationship is one that is under attack like never before by the enemy. And so we need to take again the words of Jesus seriously in Mark 10, and I'll end with this. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the purpose of marriage. Let's pray. And then we're going to worship together one more time with a song. Thanks for having me. Jonathan is not this long-winded, I know. <laughs> He's a good guy, but he keeps it to 30 minutes. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your instruction to all of us. We worship you as our uh, bridegroom. We submit ourselves to you. We respect you. We revere you because of what you did. You loved us sacrificially. You sanctified us. You satisfied our greatest need. So help us as husbands and as wives to model that in our own families and relationship, but to model that for a world that desperately needs you. And so you've called us in our marriages to be on mission. Help us to live that out well. In Jesus' name, amen.